0: The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public, and provide insight into
1: leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the
0: Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education
2: Center.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, today is Saturday, May 18th, 2019, and welcome to the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center for the 2019 Army Heritage Days event. The USAC sponsors a keynote speaker for each day of Army Heritage Days to provide insight into our soldiers' history. It is my privilege and pleasure today to introduce our keynote speaker, Mr. Jack Kennard. Mr. Kennard is the son of 2nd Ranger Battalion Lieutenant Frank Kennard, the subject of today's lecture. Mr. Kennard earned his BA in English Literature and a Master's in Business Administration from the University of Virginia. Mr. Kennard was commissioned as a Lieutenant in the US Army Armor Corps and served in Vietnam in 1970. During his Army career, Mr. Kennard worked for several general officers and a U.S. ambassador, managing communications between various intelligence agencies. After his Army career, Mr. Kennard worked as a professor at various universities and spent several years as a global brand director for none other than Jack Daniels Whiskey. Retired from Brown, the Brown Forming Corporation, Mr. Kennard now serves as an expert witness in intellectual property court cases and publishes marketing textbooks. Along with his historical research. Today, Mr. Kennard will tell us the story of his father, a ranger during Operation Overlord, based on his book, The D Day Journal, the story of a US ranger on Omaha Beach. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me give a big AHEC welcome to Mr. Jack Kennard.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Carl. It's truly an honor for me to be with you in this very special place and to have this time to share with you today. My book, uh, D-Day Journal, The Untold Story of a U.S. Ranger on Omaha Beach, it was published earlier this year and it's available on Amazon and in the bookshop. By many accounts, the most significant day of the 20th century was June 6, 1944, the day the Allied invasion of Europe began on the beaches of Normandy, France. This day was the start to the end of World War II and it will be forever known as D-Day. The 2nd U.S. Ranger Battalion well, we'll go to that one. The 2nd U.S. Ranger Battalion was among the first units leading the beach assault. These rangers were divided into three forces. Each force was given a different objective, all within a few miles of each other, in support of the overall mission of eliminating the five German 155 millimeter guns that were positioned and they thought threatened Omaha Beach. Early in the morning, in 59 degree weather, With fog, cold, and choppy seas, three companies of U.S. Rangers jumped out of their struggling, low-sided craft, some of which had taken on enough water to swamp them. They were met instantly by seemingly endless volleys of German mortar and machine gun fire. Force A numbered about 300 Rangers, consisting of companies D, E, and F. Lieutenant Colonel uh, James Earl Rudder was the battalion commander in charge. Force A was intended to land on both the east and the west sides of the tip of the pace of Point De hoc Secure rope ladders to the top of the 90-foot-high rugged cliffs, scale them, spread out across the top of the point, locate and remove the massive German guns, each with the ability to fire a 90-pound shell over a distance of 12 miles. Although several generals and their military planners thought the assault on Pointe-de-Hoc was a suicide mission, General Eisenhower considered it essential to take out the German guns that threatened Operation Overlord, the initial invasion of Europe under his command. The Rangers trusted their leaders. Each one had a deep understanding of the entire mission, and they were filled with confidence in their training. The rangers saw their mission on D-Day as impossible to fail. Look at the confidence on that soldier's face snapped at that moment before all hell breaks loose. At Pointe de Hoc, about 7:10 a.m., 40 minutes after the deafening roar of supporting gunfire from the battleship Texas had subsided, And more than 30 minutes later than planned, as a result of a British lieutenant's navigational error, the Rangers of Task Force A landed on a narrow rocky beach on the east side of the point. The delay was of enormous consequence. The delay allowed time for the German soldiers to wake up and have some idea of what was happening. Rangers who had survived the rough 54 degree water and the chaos and carnage from sweeping enemy gunfire began to scale the muddy and broken cliffs of Pointe-de-Hoc. Using ropes and ladders, the men climbed hand over hand in heroic defiance of grenades that were being rolled over the top right down onto them, and continuous fire from German Mauser rifles pointed down directly at them. On the beach, ranger sharpshooters returned fire and picked off more than a dozen German soldiers. The rangers at Point De Hoc had little protection by today's standards and could carry only lightweight items while scaling the cliffs. Today's rangers carry between 40 and 100 pounds of gear, depending on their mission. The D-Day rangers wore lightweight army fatigues, which had become soaked in mud and blood and channel brine. To save weight, most of these men carried only a fighting knife, an M1 carbine rifle or a, with eight rounds in it, or a pistol, one canteen of water, no more than 80 rounds of ammunition on a cartridge belt, and an enriched chocolate bar. A few men carried a Thompson submachine gun, also known as a Chicago piano. Yet, each man in the 2nd Ranger Battalion knew that on that day, D-Day, they carried the hope of the free world on their shoulders. By midday, the assault mission of the 2nd Ranger Battalion had been accomplished, and the battalion became the first American unit to achieve their objective on D-Day. Securing and holding the point in the face of ferocious and repeated German counterattacks came at a terrible cost. By the afternoon of June 8th, the casualty rate for the 550 men who had sailed from England 72 hours earlier was about 60%. For my father, Ranger Lieutenant Frank Elkinar, D-Day was a day he never forgot. On the 50th anniversary of D-Day in 1994, he told a newspaper journalist that he thought he was lucky just to have left lasted to 22. He said, I graduated from Yale University in the summer of 1943 and joined the Rangers in England. I went to Fort Sill with 51 classmates from college. Ten among us went to Fort Jackson and four of us went overseas together on the same boat. I'm the only one among the four who volunteered and I'm the only one who survived. The other three were killed within a few months. Kennard landed on Omaha Beach at 9.30 a.m. His cannon platoon, Ranger Cannon Platoon, was assigned an extraordinarily risky mission. They were to be among the first to cross Omaha Beach, move up the bluffs and above the beach, and then move west and join up with fellow rangers of the 2nd Ranger Battalion who had assaulted pointe du hawk directly. His platoon consisted of 15 men and two cannon-mounted half-tracks. In his journal, written shortly after D-Day, Lieutenant Kennard wrote, on the morning of June 6th, I woke about five o'clock to find ships in my wave moving in a circle. Behind us were the four large transports all anchored in a row. The whole French coast was aglow with a fiery red. About 6.30 we got underway and headed for shore. I know I danced a jig. On the top of the deck, because it seemed impossible to lose, we were throwing so much stuff at Jerry. When we got close, I got really scared. 488s bracketed us, wounded one of the naval anti-aircraft gun crewmen, and tossed a shell fragment into the driver compartment of the vehicle. On the way in, I felt like a kid. It was great to be a part of the tremendous armada that hit the beach at H hour. It was hard to believe there was a war on. The shore was all lit up from explosions that rather seemed like the 4th of July. Then 88 started landing around my boat, and all of us got scared. We just had to sit there and take it. Stephen Ambrose, the late premier historian of D-Day and author of the masterwork D-Day and Band of Brothers, wrote, they experienced war at its most horrible demanding and challenging. Less than one month later Lieutenant Kennard became the 2nd Ranger Battalion adjutant and served with the Rangers in that role through every battle to the end of the war. So here's how this book came to be. My grandfather William Kennard, owned a textile company in lower Manhattan. He was a stern and forceful man well-read in American history and he instilled in his three sons all of whom served in World War II, a sense of duty to record their experiences in letters and send them back home. More than 50 years ago when I was a teenager in New Jersey, my father gave me his World War II letters. Each had been neatly typed and transcribed by his father's father's secretary. Lieutenant Frank Kennard's letters span about a year from Thanksgiving Day in 1943 in New York City when he boarded a troop ship to England to November 1944 in Belgium and Germany when the 2nd Ranger Battalion was fighting in the Hurtgen Forest in some of the fiercest battles in the war in Europe. Gathered together, these letters constitute a personal wartime journal with a remarkable strategic perspective. Despite the histories, films such as Saving Private Ryan, and stories about the 2nd Ranger Battalion, until now, no battlefield journal or letters written by any soldier who served with the 2nd Ranger Battalion from D-Day preparations until the end of the war has been published. I saved Dad's letters and occasionally shared them with my six sisters and my brother. Dad passed at age 91 in April of 2014. And after Dad's death, I reread his letters, and I was struck by one letter written in June, June 22, 1944, just a few days after the battles of Normandy had ended. Lieutenant Kennard wrote to his father Our battalion has been given the Presidential Unit Citation, and a great many men are receiving Distinguished Service Crosses and Silver Stars. I do hope you save my newspaper accounts regarding the Rangers. I hope the story of what the boys did is told. So that's why I'm here today. Telling the story is my calling, a calling of love, and a calling of duty to do my part to make sure the story of what the boys did is told. Happily, Lieutenant Kennard's story is fresh. It adds untold facts and insight into D-Day history. And regarding my father's wartime letters, it becomes evident you will see that Lieutenant Kennard's favorite topic was not himself. His focus was almost invariably about what he saw, what he did, and why he did it. The what and the why are recorded shortly after the hours of battle when life and death were balanced on a knife's edge. Dad was very humble about his contributions on D-Day and through the end of the war. This was evident in what he said at home and in any press interview he gave, but it also could be plainly seen during a dinner we had on June 6, 2004 in Normandy when uh, we were at the hotel staying commemorating the 60th anniversary of D-Day. So a small military team entered the restaurant, a major general in the Army accompanied by two staff members, an Air Force captain and an Army sergeant. My brother-in-law, retired lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, was with us and he went over to the other table and mentioned to the general that there was a ranger uh, at our table. Before we left the restaurant, the small group approached our table. The general called the detail to attention and the three of them executed a salute in front of dad. He was so stunned, for a moment he sat there just with his jaw open. My brother-in-law nudged dad and said, return the salute. (laughs) He jumped up and did that. Lieutenant Kinnard just couldn't believe the general would honor him like that even after a day of honors. I think he considered all the activities that day were to honor the unit and not him personally. I shared with you my father's account of his landing on Omaha Beach, but now let's go back a few months in time for some of the little-known stories about ranger training and preparation in advance of D-Day. There's that restaurant that I skipped over. Here we are. You recognize both of these guys? In the United Kingdom, Winston Churchill oversaw the formation of the special commando units after the Nazi blitzkrieg had decimated London in 1940. The commandos became the elite fighting force that could, in Churchill's words, conduct secret amphibious operations, destroy Nazi targets, collect intelligence, and then covertly return home across the English Channel. While embracing the idea of special forces, Americans joined the effort in in June of 1942 when General George Marshall, shown on the right here, ordered the American commando unit and dispatched Colonel Lucian Truscott to Northern Ireland to study British commando training and form the modern U.S. Rangers. Out of respect for the British, Eisenhower did not want to copy the term commando, and so the modern Rangers were born. The 2nd Ranger Battalion was cracked into shape by a rugged Texan, then-Major James Earl Rudder. Earlier in life, Rudder dug ditches to help his family survive the Great Depression. Before joining the army, Rudder was a college football coach and he was a darn good judge of young men. Years after the war, but still rising in the reserves, Rudder became president of Texas A&M University. Preparing his rangers in England, Lieutenant Colonel Rudder said, I'm going to work you harder than you've ever worked in a shorter time than you can imagine. You're going to be the best fighting unit in this man's army. And he wasn't kidding. It was double days, double time, and amazingly long endurance marches. He talked to you softly but firmly like a big brother, recalled Lem Lamel, one of my father's closest friends and one of the great rangers, famous for his team's discovery of the guns on the top of Point de hoc one mile from Point to hoc Said, Lamel, he inspired you to do your best. You just wanted to die for him. Overall, Lieutenant Colonel Rudder demanded two attributes from his rangers, soldierly conduct and superb physical condition and performance. In England, British commandos trained the rangers to fight in unconventional ways. The men were mentally and physically tested. In 2000, Ranger Lamelle described the special bond of comradeship that was created by unconventional commando-style training. He said... Ralph Gorenson was captain captain of C Company. He was leader of our buddy company, C, and I was in D Company. Now in our training, buddy companies had to fight each other darn near every day. He was captain and I was a first sergeant. You see, we had these big sawdust pits about four feet deep and our company would get in the sawdust pit and C Company would throw us out. Or we would put them in the pit and throw them out. And this went on and on, the competition between our two companies, but we are brothers, we are true brothers in the Rangers. I believe my uh, father's athletic experience as a boxer at Yale was an asset, which Rudder considered when he interviewed dad before inviting him to join the Rangers. I know the technical skill of fighting was a lifesaver during the invasion. And now think of those sawdust pits and then think of the bomb craters on the top of Pointe De Hoc. Being skilled sufficiently in hand-to-hand combat to knock German soldiers out of position was one reason for the success of the early advance. Rudder's Rangers were highly confident of their capabilities to move on foot and with great speed toward an objective. To destroy enemy positions held by larger forces was something that did not intimidate them and to engage in hand-to-hand combat was something they were skilled at. However, as infantry soldiers, they were extremely uncomfortable to the point of anger at the thought of a cannon platoon firing 75-millimeter rounds directly over their heads at a nearby objective. They simply weren't used to it. They had not previously trained for infantry directly supported by artillery. Even with training, friendly fire was a constant threat for a unit on the tip of the invasion spear. And friendly fire from other US units would cause Ranger casualties during the D-Day assaults. Lieutenant Kennard's unit would experience mistaken friendly fire after they got off of of Omaha Beach and out in front and were using captured German weapons to fire at the enemy. So here's the story of how the men of the 2nd Ranger cannon platoon convinced the infantry counterparts not to fear supported cannon fire. Kennard's fellow cannon platoon leader, Lieutenant Conway Epperson, there were just two of them, spoke in 2006 with Douglas Becky of the Minnesota Historical Society, and Epperson said, We were doing this training in England. We were trying to get the, the rest of the battalion used to direct fire right over them with live ammunition, with our 75 millimeter cannon. And they had never come close to it. Well, we had to prove to them we were good. So they had the battalion demonstrate, the battalion out, their demonstration of our firing. And we were on an English field, or it was sort of a firing range. Anyway, the major in charge wanted to know if we had some pretty accurate gunners. And I said, Yes, sir. He said, Do you see that flag on top of that flagpole out there about 1,500 feet? And I said, Yes, sir he says that flag pole should that flag shouldn't be flying can your people take that post down and I said just the post or just the flag he said take the top of it off roger I had my throat mic on and I called number one track and gave them the directions and firing elevation and all the necessary range and elevation numbers I said fire only on my command and let me know when you're ready and he said it immediately he was good this guy he says Ready, I said, okay, fire, and boom! The shell went off and he took that flag off there. This major from the British Army says, boy, that was the best I've seen. Uh, Can you take that pole down? Said, I think so. So I called number two gun. I said, number two, have you got the information from number one, Roger? I said, they don't want that flagpole out there. The whole pole, Roger, ready, fire, boom! Major says, that's good enough. After the companies had seen what we could do with those cannons, with those two incidents, they didn't mind us shooting over their head at all. They crawled through that barbed wire. We'd take out other small targets that they requested. No, they didn't mind those things. They knew we were pretty good. And and I will add here that they were so good that on some rounds they could hit the slit in the pillbox. This has a mind of its own, doesn't it? Moving now to the invasion, let's, let's hear again what uh, Lieutenant Kennard said through his letters. On June 2nd, my LCT load moved in convoy to Portland where we loaded up and moved a short way out into the harbor and anchored. There were literally hundreds of craft anchored there. Four or five LCTs or three or four LSTs, that's a landing ship tank, would be anchored to the same buoy. We really presented a marvelous bombing target but no enemy planes ever appeared. En route to Portland, the roads were packed with military convoys, and it seems that all the citizens had taken a holiday to watch and cheer us on. It was truly a sight to see thousands of doughboys combat loaded with TNT, Bangalore torpedoes, pole chargers, flamethrowers, etc. On the 3rd of June, we slipped our mooring and got underway but hardly had my boat started when we turned around and were put back into harbor. Adverse weather had caused the invasion to be postponed. On the 14th of June, we sailed again, only this time the show was on. I counted 147 LCTs in the convoy I was in. On the 5th of June, I saw two other such convoys equally as large. At no time did I see the big troop ships until they were anchored 10 miles off the coast of France. In our force, O for Omaha, There were 14 such large craft. The trip across the channel was uneventful. The water was rough, of course, and our craft rolled like blazes. I wasn't sick, however, nor did I take any of the anti-seasickness pills we all had. I slept each night on the deck using some 10-in-1 ration boxes as a mattress. The chief problems were... Closeness of quarters, rationing of water, inadequate mess preparation facilities, dirtiness resulting from sleeping on the open decks. Those are the chief problems. It was quite windy, but there was no rain, fortunately. When speaking about the actual channel crossing and after the fact, my father remarked on how different people handled stress, the stress of facing actual combat. Lieutenant Kennard wasn't much of a drinker or a gambler. So he spoke derisively of one Ranger officer who got drunk the night of June 3rd and was mouthing off about the risks and high chances of failure. This officer was newly promoted Major Cleveland Lytell, who was to lead the attack at Point de Hoc. Lytell had gotten drunk in the ship's bar the night celebrating his promotion, drinking a bottle of gin which Rudder, of all people, had given him. Colonel Rudder, had given it to him as a present. On the eve of the mission, Lytell disparaged the mission as suicidal, and he did this in front of several other officers. He was soon relieved by Rudder, who was then forced to abandon his plan to land on Omaha Beach, and instead he landed at Point de Hawk in Lytell's place, and this is historically quite significant. Was point-to-hawk a suicide mission? Well, here's a question you may know, some of you may know, has come up before. And since there was undelivered French intelligence that the big German guns had been moved, was the mission to take out the guns believed to be atop point-to-hawk a suicide mission is a legitimate question. But let's hear the opinion from Sergeant Lem Lamel from a 1984 interview with Tom Brokow
3: that i could trust as much as i could trust the d company ranger
2: but it was 40 years ago can you recapture those feelings even today what it was like approaching these cliffs
3: i can remember clearly can you yes i can were you scared uh i think apprehensive uh, i wasn't scared yet i was scared later Uh for the evening, but uh, approaching it, I don't think I was scared, because I had so many things to think about. A lot of people said that you were on a fool's mission, a suicide mission, it was a cruel joke, you got up there and there were no German guns. Those people were simply misinformed. It was perhaps one of the most important missions of D-Day. It's true that we were disappointed when we got up there, we had no intelligence that the guns had been moved to the alternate positions or anywhere, and when we discovered they were gone, that was a disappointment. Uh, but uh, we knew they were there somewhere. They had to be somewhere nearby. But you found them? Yes, but uh, when we found them, they were all pointed at Utah Beach. They would a massacre at Utah Beach, but fortunately, We were lucky and accomplished the mission all within a couple hours of our landing, and that was the whole point of the mission. So that's why I never regarded it as a suicidal mission or as a cruel joke. I I never could understand why the uh, articles were written that way. And I might add that in 40 years, this is the first time anybody's ever talked to me.
0: You heard my father's letter about the um, initial landing when his platoon was met on Omaha Beach by intense German gunfire, artillery, and mortar rounds, so well, here, here's what happened next. And He writes, The beach was only about 15 yards wide as it was high tide, and it was simply covered with dead, wounded, abandoned equipment, burnt-out vehicles, and small assault craft. We soon ran into a traffic jam and could proceed no further. As Lieutenant Kennard's emotions changed from excitement and jubilation at his initial assault to shock and fear, at the beach in the face of his first experience of the horrors of war. He never panicked or cowered. Like his fellow rangers, Kennard's response to extreme danger was to improvise and then charge ahead. He writes, I went along the beach on foot and found it packed with troops and vehicles which couldn't move because there was no exit. The 116th had lost most of the radios and no one seemed to know what the other one was supposed to do. Furthermore, if you got too far out in front, there was no way of keeping your own troops from firing on you. Using a Bangalore torpedo, I carried on my track a Colonel Thompson of the 6th Engineer Shore Brigade blew a gap in the concertina wire that Jerry had stretched along the back of the beach. My men had dismounted because our vehicles seemed to be targets for enemy mortars and artillery. All of us went through the wire and took up positions behind a two-foot wall, which ran along the road parallel to the water. We received occasional small arms fire, which seemed to be directed at us, and much mortar and some artillery fire. In trying to get my half-track off the beach and through the gap in the wire, we broke an axle or a drive shaft. We fired a few rounds at suspected targets in places where we thought the enemy might be. We could not see him, but we knew we were being shot at. Anyway, it it boosted our morale. I used the other half-track to tow the first one out of the way. Then after shifting loads, we ran the second half-track partway up the wire gap and resumed firing. After a while, we got some M3 tanks, so we stopped firing and let the tanks do it. They were able to get up through the gap in the wire, whereas our half-tracks were not. Late in the afternoon, my remaining good half-track was hit by a shell and caught on fire. It was loaded with 100 rounds of ammunition, and it sure burned. It continued to burn till late night. We were also carrying some automatic weapons, and we put these into action. Two of my men who were, firing at one of the bra- who were firing one of the Brownings were hit by a mortar and killed outright. A third man was wounded in the face. By this time, we were digging in, for the tanks were drawing a great deal of fire. There were only seven of us left, and we didn't know who was ahead of us and didn't dare go for fear someone behind would shoot us. No one had communication with anyone. With only seven mu- men remaining from his cannon platoon and with his half-track vehicles disabled, Kennard gathered a mixed band of rangers who were on Omaha Beach as landing survivors and initiated an independent action westward toward the big German guns at Pointe De Hoc. The group included one half a platoon from F Company, 5th Ranger Battalion intensive and unconventional ranger training paid off. Again, as each man in this group, unlike some other infantry that day, knew instinctively and from their preparation by British commandos, that hunkering down on the beach was suicidal. Moving off the beach, over the seawall, and toward the enemy through direct fire to protection afforded by higher ground required tremendous courage and determination but it was the safest course of action. Lieutenant Colonel, I mean, Lieutenant Kennard's journal continues About 200 yards inland from the beach was a high 100 foot bank. I figured we'd be a lot safer on the slope of that than where we were. As the shelling continued to get heavier, we finally made the dash inland. We took refuge in an anti tank ditch, and when we were partway there, We eventually reached the bank without casualty. About halfway up the slope, we found a destroyed enemy pillbox, no enemy dead around, and we took shelter in that. We tried to get some of the men on the beach to join us, but either they didn't see us or they didn't want to. In a Fox television interview commemorating the 60th anniversary of D-Day, Kennard said, There wasn't any stopping this invasion. This was going to be a piece of cake. Then when you get closer in, you get bracketed by enemy fire, and you get scared. We basically didn't know where the fire was coming from. We couldn't see any source of it, but it was coming. We came from the water and halfway up the hill, and somewhere along the way, there was an empty emplacement, and that's where we took shelter. Finally, safe for the moment, Kennard then heard the cries of a fallen soldier back on the beach. Omaha was being raked with volley after volley of German machine gun fire. Despite the high risk of being hit by bullets and recrossing the beach, Kennard was compelled by character and compassion to provide aid and comfort to a severely wounded soldier. He said, He was wounded and in great pain, and then his voice trails off. So I quickly went down and picked him up, and took him onto the beach and back to my disabled half-track and put him in my bedroll and made him as comfortable as I could. But I don't know what his name was, or anything else, or what happened to him. It was late, so we decided to wait to go over the top of the hill until the next morning. The worst part is not being able to find out where Jerry is. Once you know where he is, you can go after him. Finally, when you're looking down his throat, you'll have an even chance of getting him. In the initial assault, he had all the advantage. I hate to think of what would have happened had there been 100% Nazi troops there. The next morning, we attacked the top of the hill and overran an enemy machine gun, captured about 20 men. Machine gun position was part of an emplacement which controlled the entire exit, which was over 50 feet deep. I went all through it looking for more Jerry's, but found nothing except large quantities of arms, ammo, food, and Vichy water. One emplacement I went through personally was 50 feet deep, well stocked with food, ammunition, and weapons. A few men with a will to fight could have held up a thousand. About 11 o'clock, a major street ran into us and took us back to the beach where we scavenged supplies of all kinds and loaded them on an LCA. We rode this craft along the coast of the point, then we put ashore at the point about 4 o'clock. There were only about 60 men left from the original 180 who landed. The food and water we brought them was a welcome relief. Also, the 30-some-odd men in the boat were badly in need of relief. The previous night, they had had vicious counterattacks, but the night of June 7th was pretty quiet. On June 18th, my father wrote, I have a new job. I'm adjutant of the battalion. I think I shall like this. At least it's a tables of organization job. My promotion went in, so I should be a first lieutenant before long. Colonel Rudder and the other battalion officers relied heavily on the adjutant uh, in three areas. Personnel management, after action reporting up the chain of command and securing approval to recommendations made for awards for bravery and sacrifice. Rudder saw in Kennard the qualities he needed in his adjutant. A healthy ego, but not boastful or given to exaggeration, respect for others, attention to detail, and the ability to write. And when writing later in June, my father reflected on the heroism of young Americans who fought with him. Enclosed is a clipping from the stars and stripes showing the awards of the Distinguished Service Cross to some of the men and officers in the outfit. Colonel Rudder is the commanding officer and incidentally he was wounded twice but refused to be evacuated. Captain Masney, one of our company commanders, fought for two days and nights with a broken arm. I wish everyone back in the States could see an American boy lying cold on the beach of France struck down in full stride as he charged forward. That beach was defended and we had a hell of a time, and I'll never know why one of those bullets didn't hit me. There were to be many more battles before my father in the 2nd Ranger Battalion led George Patton's victory parade in Pilsen, Czechoslovakia. There was the battle for Brest, the terrible battles in the Hurtgen Forest, and across Belgium into Germany and then VE Day at the end. Battalion battle ribbons and individual awards recognize personal valor and unit achievements in service to our country. On this measure, relative to its size, the 2nd Ranger Battalion is one of the most highly decorated units ever in the United States military. The men of the 2nd Ranger Battalion received more than 700 total Purple Hearts and individual awards for bravery between D-Day in the end of the war. And by by April 1945, the men of the 2nd Ranger Battalion had earned 18 Distinguished Service Crosses, 73 Silver Stars, 64 Bronze Star Medals, 2 British Military Medals, and astonishing 542 Purple Hearts, a Presidential Unit Citation. On D-Day alone, the casualties were about 50%. As adjutant, Lieutenant Kennard drafted the after-action reports and award recommendations for the 2nd Ranger Battalion. And with respect to awards, he was instrumental in seeing that the battalion soldier's heroism and sacrifice was recognized. He And he had a small team. They pushed all these awards up, for, up the chain of command for approval. One story my father told me more than once was the time he had written an award justification for a Ranger's performance that in an engagement included, uh, that included capturing a significant number of enemy soldiers. When he delivered the award paperwork to a higher headquarters, the senior officer, and I believe it was a general, read it and handed it back to him. He said, Lieutenant, for this to be approved, it has to drip blood. And Dad always said that with gruesome emphasis shaking a piece of paper at me across the table. In other words, as written, the general would not approve the award. On the other hand, it was a truthful account of the action. He took it back to Lieutenant Colonel Rudder, and Rudder reacted strongly. These boys have sacrificed so much and given their all, I will not have you rewrite and embellish. Kennard never complained or evidenced the slightest self-pity that no one in the battalion stepped into his role to recommend battle ribbons for him despite his service in every campaign. Kennard was only one of about six who served with the Second Rangers from D-Day to the end of the war. One of President Reagan's most moving and memorable speeches commemorated the 40th anniversary of D-Day on June 6, 1984, at a ceremony overlooking the cliffs at Normandy. Here's President Reagan.
3: And I tell you, we are ready to seize that beachhead. We look for some sign from the Soviet Union that they are willing to move forward, that they share our desire and love for peace, and that they will give up the ways of conquest. Then Mr. Reagan spoke to the old Rangers. These are the boys of Puente Hope These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. These are the heroes who helped end a war.
0: So today... Seventy-five days after D-Day, we remember again the heroism of these young soldiers. Their bravery and sacrifice unifies us around larger themes and promotes more civil discourse. The history of our heroes inspires us to do better and to face our own challenges with resolve. It's good for us to be reminded that it is through sacrifice that life, freedom, decency, and goodness are sustained. Despite all the horrors of war and thousands of lives lost, The D-Day story that stays with us from generation to generation is a story about the triumph of good over evil. So dad, this book is my way of telling the story and my attempt to give an award for heroism and sacrifice to our country so richly deserved. Thank you all for coming and God bless America.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming out. We have about 10 minutes uh, for question and answer. Before we get started on Q&A, though, I want to remind everyone we have 15 copies. At least 20 minutes ago, we had 15 copies left of the book. So if you want to get one, you're going to want to go all the way to the gift shop, purchase one of those copies. They're already signed, but you can come up here and talk with Jack after the uh, program uh, if you're interested. So we got 10 minutes.
2: Who's got a question? Over here on this side. Thank you. Hello. Um, My late uncle uh, hit Omaha Beach on the third wave. And uh, he was a corporal of an infantry platoon and all the officers and everybody above E-4 were killed. He took a platoon and moved it to the seawall. And um, he was wounded that day and he got a silver star out of it. So I didn't know that until after he was dead. But one question in his mind that he always mentioned to me, even in his latest years, was he said, where is the napalm? Where is the napalm that we see the Japanese being, you know, killed by the Corsairs and everything in the Pacific, blowing up, you know, the Japanese emplacements with napalm? And nowhere in Europe, I may be wrong, did the U.S. ever use napalm, as they did in the Pacific. Is that a strategic or a tactical use of?
0: Uh, well, thank you for the question, and I wish I could give you an answer on the on the napalm. I'm somewhat familiar with it from Vietnam, but I, in way of just bringing it back to to D-Day, uh, air air support was was ordered to be called off, uh, thankfully, because with the delay ahead of the landing and had the. Uh, it was a pretty close call because then it would be re- resumed, and the delay in the troops landing due to the the uh, weather and the German defense almost put a really bad situation out there that didn't happen. Um, and uh, but there was no that I know of no no napalm. I don't have that answer for you. Sorry. All right, we
1: have one right up here in front. Uh,
0: can you clarify? I think you said your dad went up on the. Uh, higher ground and then came back down to the beach and then was moved by sea over to Point de Hawk, and then up the cliffs. Did he ever get back with, a, I mean, have a cannon and a half track and, and back into that type of operation or he went right into the adjutant position? He, he uh, did not. The, the uh, two half tracks were destroyed. Uh, his fellow planning cannon platoon leader, uh, Epperson, became head of the motor pool for the, uh, uh, for the battalion. And uh, Dad became the adjutant. And he started acting as the adjutant pretty much uh, as soon after he got to, uh, uh, after he got in the relief party on day one at Point de Hoc.
2: You mentioned that, uh, I guess, Major, Captain Rudder, Major Rudder, uh, took command of the unit that was at Point du Hoc. And you mentioned it was critical or created some uncertainty. Could you elaborate on that?
0: Well, he, he was... Major L- Major Lytell was going to be in command, and uh, when the issue of of the um, disparagement and the the morale issue was brought to his attention, they were on different boats. Actually, they were on three boats. He was uh, shuttled around to try to deal with this. Called, um, actually had obviously had to have permission to take over the the, and he was he was initially denied, and uh, he said, General, if I don't take over, we're not going, which was strong, and uh, and I will add here in the Q&A that my understanding is that uh, Major Lytell later um, uh, re- recovered from his error in judgment and uh, continued on and, and is, an, is honorably discharged.
1: All right, another one up front.
3: Did your uh, father ever comment about what happened when they got to the top and found a gun wasn't operational uh, any, any feeling of, of letdown or anything like that, based upon that?
0: No, that's, I'm glad you asked that because I'd love to clarify more on that. Uh, I only showed the part of the clip where um, Lamel is talking to uh, to Brokaw, uh, addressing that um, mainstream media question. Um, anyway, he what he, what he did what was done is they located Sergeant Kuhn and others located those guns. They, were, they then got thermite grenades and, and took them out of, out of commission. Uh, other Germ- Germans, it just as luck, the Germans were around. They just weren't on the guns at that moment. So this, uh, and they were pointed at Utah instead of Omaha, but they would have been enormously destructive of the troops on Utah. So it, it's, mu- it's not much ado about nothing. It's historically significant, but yes, the guns were there. No, they weren't exactly where they thought they were, no, they weren't pointed at Omova. Yes, they were pointed at Utah. They needed to be taken out, and they were.
2: Your father's
1: uh, letter that said the story needs to be told yes. has never been more important than it is now with our veterans reaching an age. Um, and I have a five-year-old son, and. I'm afraid his generation is never going to understand the sacrifice and the stories. So thank you for sharing. Um, you know, I saw we did have a World War II veteran in here earlier, and it's just your father. Did he? How did the war affect him after when he came home? You know, did he struggle? Did he? Uh, you know, what what did he do after the war? Did he share his stories? Did he talk about his 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 time in the service?
0: Thank you for your comment and and a good question. I think a lot of people. Do you all you all may. Uh, I'll bet I see some heads nod when I say many of the Second World War veterans came home and didn't talk much about the war, right? He did not, uh, I will say it is a blessing, but it is a fact. He did not suffer any type of of PSD and may make a light comment except when he hit me. Uh, But (laughs) no, no, he did not, uh, that's just a joke. Um, He did not choose to talk about it, but... it would come out. Of, here's one little quick one I know uh, that I, I hope is uh, of some entertainment value because it's all true. He liked to camp. He liked to. T- we didn't have a lot of money. He, we would go camping, and so he would use that occasion to kind of describe something they had learned. Now for example, do you know how to take a bath in a helmet? Anyone here know how to take a bath in a helmet? You do. Oh yes, sir. Well, you might agree, or you might have your own version, which we can go into later. But uh, you, he said, well here you get four sticks. And you plant them in the ground, and you put your helmet on top of the four, and then you put your canteen water in there, and you got two hands to take a bath. That's what we did. And uh, I covered only the letters landing at Normandy, and it, and that uh, you were very kind to listen to that. I couldn't go on past that, but he. Uh, there are stories like that. So he, those are the kinds of stories he told, as opposed to some of the things that I've shared with you today that were there. He didn't amplify those uh, war stories to us. He rather told us human interest stories. That's who, what he did.
1: Yeah. All right. We have one right here in the middle.
3: When you, when you were talking about the uh, operation the Army Ranger were in, and you said that they were part of an operation with, with Patton, did your father ever ever met Patton, General Patton?
0: Uh, thank you. You asked if I if he ever met General Patton. No, he didn't meet General Patton. But I would like to tell you a short story. Um, at the end of the war, and this is and the, uh, Patton, uh, there was a huge parade after VE Day in Czechoslovakia. The Soviets had control at a deal. Stalin and and uh, Eisenhower and Churchill had given given uh, uh, Prague and all of Czechoslovakia to the Soviets, except. Pilsen is as far as we went. Well, the Soviets are going to have a parade, a big one. When Patton heard about that, he's going to have a parade too. So there was a very large parade, which the second Rangers. And I have a picture of my father in the, leading it with five others, and they had they had no flag for the parade. They had they'd lost them. They'd been shot up. They were gone. You had to have a flag to lead the parade. And Patton said, well, you going to get a damn flag. And he didn't come directly to my father, but, you know. And uh, they ended up, uh, Captain Gerald Haney ended up with one other driver sneaking off to, to Prague, which was Russian territory, have, finding a seamstress and having an American flag stitched 24 hours before the parade came back. And I will tell you that Le- Captain Gerald Haney became U.S. District Judge Haney, one of the prominent federal district judges of, of Minnesota. Uh, all later in his life, So, and we had a flag, we had a parade, Patton had his parade, but my dad never met him. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about
3: the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at
0: www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.